to me that was the biggest win with the first company is it taught me that even if I don't know my ass from my elbow I can figure it out right um, and that that was maybe my superpower is that um, I can sort of jump into an environment that I know nothing about and, and just figure it out and I think that ultimately that's what entrepreneurs do right? Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of speaking with Natalie Molina Nina. Natalie is an impact investor targeting high growth businesses that economically benefit women and the planet. A confessed but recovering serial entrepreneur, Natalie launched her first tech business at the early age of 20 years old, and like the rest of us, got hooked. She's the co-founder of Entrepreneurs at Athena, at the Athena Center for Leadership Studies at Bernard College at Columbia University which is where the Leapfrog idea came from. But before the launch of her Leapfrog book, she spent over a decade sharing her no BS opinionated flavor of business advice and growth strategy with folks like Disney, Microsoft, MTV, Mantle, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Everyone needs to hear this episode, guys. And especially if you're friends with a VC, be sure to share it with them. Okay, let's jump into the action. So Natalie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Um, these sorts of one-on-one conversations are, are always fun, especially when I spend all my time on podiums. <laughs> yeah, especially when they start on Instagram, when I ask you to come on the show. I love it when it works out. It doesn't always work <laughs> out. <laughs> I'm still waiting to hear back from uh, The Rock and Kevin Hart, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Damn, I don't know either, so I can't. <laughs> That's okay. So, Natalie, when you are out and about, how do you introduce yourself to people? I tell them that I'm an investor, unless I'm in a room full of entrepreneurs, and then I just say that I'm a entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't get bombarded with pitches, right? Yeah, pretty much. But we, we always have a good nose for investors, so we can usually suss you guys out. <laughs> I've noticed that. I've really noticed that. And, you know, the releasing of the book hasn't helped because now everybody's... Now everyone knows. And the another secret's one. out. Yeah, the secret's out. And how we suss you guys out is because you guys have so much confidence and you carry yourselves really well and you look fed and well-slept. So... Um... <laughs> We're usually wearing nice sneakers. <laughs> yeah, no. Because we don't care. <laughs> no, no, that's awesome. So... Before we get into the fund and the book and the amazing work that you're doing at the moment, I just want to, you know, step back and, and talk about early life. So what was it like growing up? And did you always know you wanted to be an entrepreneur and an investor? I knew neither. Uh, I wanted to be an artist. Um, and, you know, like any good immigrant kid, and I'm finding the more I talk about this, the more I I discover that it is across all cultures. It doesn't matter if you're Indian roots or, you know, Ukrainian roots. Um, You know, immigrants have a really strong opinion. They didn't bust their butts to bring you as a kid to this country so that you can go and be an artist. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately, they have this concept, um, you know, that artists starve. And, you know, obviously our families want the best for us. And so I was uh, told, as a lot of, I think, immigrant kids are told, that, you know, it it was engineering, uh, law, or medicine. These were were my options. Um, And, you know, my parents hustled. They were entrepreneurs. And I um, talk about how, you know, if, if, if I have anything like an MBA, I got it at the, at the dining room table. I know that some families, you know, you don't talk about politics and you don't talk about entre- uh, business at the dining room table, but that is all we talked about at my dining room table. Wow. Um, and so I, you know, I, I learned a lot about what it meant to be an entrepreneur and, and what the struggle was. And so when I went to college, I envisioned something entirely different for myself. I wanted first to be an artist and then later, um, you know, I decided to study engineering 
Um, and I opted to study environmental engineering because I was and, and remain super passionate about climate change. And, um, and so, yeah, I thought I was going to be a scientist. And then um, I actually got a glimpse of what scientists' lives are actually like. And I remember um, experiencing a study in the Amazon rainforest um, that was promising and it felt important. Um, and I was, I was with this group um, in the Amazon and um, next thing you know, without any prior notice, their funding was simply pulled, which means that, you know, their entire destiny was controlled by some bureaucrat, you know, in mm. the U.S. who just decided we were going to pull the funding for this really important biodiversity study. And um, what it what it did to me is it reminded me that, um, you know, scientists aren't as free as they seem. Um, and it, more importantly, it reminded me that as much as I watched my family struggle and I thought I wanted something different, I also loved controlling my own destiny and the freedom um, that comes with all of the trials and tribulations of being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. But for me, you know, freedom was the most important thing. And so um, later in life, not too much later, in fact, just uh, I think a year or two later, I found myself starting my first startup. But um, it was less, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and it was more out of necessity, really. I think that's how most entrepreneurs, you know, including myself, how we start off, right? It's out of necessity as opposed to, oh, I think I should do this. Yeah, I mean, I think most, and this is this is why I think I do what I do, and this is definitely part of why I wrote the book, is I think that the majority of entrepreneurs' experience really is coupled with necessity. For example, we talk about how most businesses in the United States now are being started by women, um, and that's, that's a fact, but of those women, eight out of every 10 of them are women of color. Mm. And that is both impressive and, and, uh, you know, it just speaks to how entrepreneurial women of color by design are. But I have a hard time divorcing that from the fact that during the downturn in the economy in the United States in 2009, for example, black women were fired and lost their jobs more than anyone else in this country. So, wow. you know, the fact that those two things are true, I think, um, is connected. I think that, you know, when you are getting the shaft and, and put in positions where you can't, you know, choose necessarily where that paycheck is going to come from because it's just been removed from your life, then you you are scrappy by design and maybe yeah. by default and by necessity, right? Yeah, no, that's incredible. I did not know that statistic. Hmm. Um it's turned into a whole generation of really entrepreneurial women, though. And so, um, you know, not, not to say that that, that isn't a, a sad statistic, but at least, you know, something good has come of it. And I think that it's made a whole generation of women, especially women of color, really res resilient and, and scrappy and entrepreneurial. So. Absolutely. So, so talk to me about your, your first project. Yeah, so I was in school at CU Boulder in Boulder, Colorado. I... Um, I was studying engineering. I was working one of those classic college jobs where you're getting paid, you know, student wages, minimum wage to manage a computer lab, right? And manage the computer labs. And what do a bunch of geeks do managing computer labs where most of the time, you know, you're not doing anything <laughs> waiting for something to break. Um, you know, we all taught each other to code. And so, you know, at the time um, to totally date myself, it was um, 1996 and you know, the internet was mostly silly blinking fonts and little silly icons. Mm. And um, there wasn't a lot of real transactional, robust software online. And at the time was around when Microsoft had launched Visual Studio. And what they did is, uh, sorry, they had they were about to launch Visual Studio. And they had sent it to a bunch of the research institutions around the country in beta form for beta testing. So we got basically pre-launch version of Visual Studio which for those of you that are listening that are not coders, it was, you know, the early days of ASP and database-driven websites, basically, transactional websites. Um, so we taught ourselves to code. We taught ourselves ASP. We figured out how to use SQL Server. And we built robust, beautiful, useful websites that actually did things. And one of the things that we did, for example, was built an inventory uh, management website for the cafeteria just for wow. them to manage, you know, their food. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and we're getting student wages for that. And the long and short of it is that over the uh, Christmas, over the winter holiday, I went back to South America where my family is from and I got myself into a nice, uh, pretty spectacular uh, motorcycle wreck. <laughs> wow. Um, 
And in Boulder, my only form of transportation was a motorcycle. So when I went uh, to South America for the holidays, got into a motorcycle wreck, came back, you know, in January in Boulder, Colorado, with a bum knee and a screwed up wrist. Um, I couldn't really ride my motorcycle anymore, so I sold it. And then I went to the dingiest, sort of saddest looking little used car dealership um, in the town. Um, a website uh, was something that only really the big dealerships had, and this little, you know, um, you know, small business owner did not have one. And so I had about half of what he was asking for a Jeep Cherokee that he had on the lot. And so I remember I walked up to the owner and I said, you know, I have half of what you're asking for. Um, and for the other half, I propose that I trade you for a website. I noticed that you don't have one. Mm. And uh, anyway, he said yes. And then fast forward, you know, a little bit later, he tells his friends and then his friends tell their friends. And, you know, next thing you know, I'm in college, but I'm also running a business with a couple of other friends um, that ended up um, keeping us pretty busy. Uh, we ended up having employees and all sorts of clients. And that was really my first taste of sort of accidental entrepreneurship. Wow. And this is kind of like a true venture that really grew organically. So you guys didn't go on to like raise money, get office space. It was like cash revenue positive, generation revenue profitable from day one, right? We were, I mean, if you, if you count the fact that we were barely paying ourselves, yeah, I mean, we were, we were sort of artificially profitable from day one. <laughs> right. Um, just like a real stuff. <laughs> right. Just like everyone else that like met, fudges with their numbers and, you know, doesn't tell you all the free labor you're getting. Um, but, but yeah, we, we were, you know, basically bootstrapping and profitable from day one. And, and yeah, because we didn't have a lot of funds and we didn't have wealthy family members, um, you know, we did, we couldn't invest upfront. We had to wait until that invoice got paid before we went and hired the next person or before we mm. bought that new computer. We had to, we had to do it that way. Right. For sure. And like through that experience, like how big did it get? How much revenue did you guys make at your peak? Um, and then I guess was the company sold or the company ended up um, being worth more in parts, which, you know, at the time, right, in 1998, 99, when all the sexy acquisitions were happening, yeah. and, you know, everybody was talking about sort of the more um, traditional sort of Silicon Valley acquisition. It was a, it was a little bit of a, a, you know, maybe not so sexy, not so crisp and clean acquisition because what we discovered or what I discovered is that the assets that we had built for various clients were actually worth something, mm. right? And so it ended up being sold in parts. Right. Um, and then most importantly for me, you know, post exit was that I realized that without knowing what the hell I was doing, you know, I had managed to get, you know, some decent lawyers to help me with the IP acquisition. I had gotten, you know, support from various different people and I had learned the ropes in an environment that it was really hard to learn the ropes for because it wasn't as though it was an industry that you could, you know, study in school or there yeah. were a lot of mentors for, right? Um, the tech scene in Boulder was really nascent. It's it's so much more robust now. You know, Boulder is, is a beautiful place to have a startup now. Um, but back then it was like me and five dudes. <laughs> and that was that was it. And so I think the biggest thing that I learned and I got out of it is yes. So we, we exited. I exited. Uh, two, my two business partners had left by then. Um, but what I learned and what I got most out out of it was that then my next venture was a joint venture with a company which at the at the time was called Sykes and it's been since acquired twice um, but it was a company that focused on taking basically software and making it global and so if you can imagine right like a networked video game say that like Disney produces or Electronic Arts produces yeah. um, that video game that is like a, a networked game for you know with the, with the plotline being like World War Two or something you might not notice if the if um, if for example the the coat uh, buttons on say the Japanese soldier um, aren't historically accurate, but you take that software or that game and you sell it in Japan and people will notice those little details, right? Yeah. And so this company was basically in the business of taking software um, and specifically a lot of entertainment products like Disney and Mattel and so on. Um, and, and making them work in different languages around the world. What they didn't know, though, is they didn't know the Internet. They didn't know all of the technology that was sort of new at the time that was centered around um, the Internet. And so since we since I was an expert in my team, you know, we understood that world. Uh, we ended up um, I ended up building out their engineering team and really building out all of their sort of web business. 
Um, and I don't know. I mean, to me, that was the biggest win with the first company is it taught me that even if I don't know my ass from my elbow, I can figure it out. Right. Yeah. Um, and that, that was maybe my superpower is that, um, I can sort of jump into an environment that I know nothing about and, and just figure it out. And I think that ultimately that's what entrepreneurs do. Right. And that's what you talked to Sykes. Um, and at the time when you joined, how big was the team? Um, so at the time the company was, gosh, uh, probably like a hundred people out of Boulder. And then they ended up joining a company called SDL that acquired them. Um, the company Sykes was actually a UK based business and then Boulder was the U S operation. Um, a company called SDL ended up acquiring them. Um, and then ultimately, um, there was uh, integration in the industry and it, it's, it's a tiny little industry that most people don't know anything about, but it's called, it's localization. Um, and in a, in a crazy full circle moment after leaving um, Sykes, I ended up going to work for a company called uh, Bound Global Solutions. And again, I worked with them to essentially launch a new business. Um, and it was working as an entrepreneur in that context where the new business was to take the same idea of taking products global, but focusing on content. And so think about like the really popular at the time board game Cranium, mm. or, or if you think about Encarta, right? Like Microsoft's uh, digital encyclopedia, um, we built a business that was essentially taking products like that, that are heavily content focused where like the encyclopedia, right? It was built in the United States. You take it to Europe, that 20-page section on baseball gets to get edited down to like half a page because nobody oh, cares, yeah. right? <laughs> and, um, and the section on soccer or football, right, um, it has to be expanded. And for that matter, the section on World War II probably has to be rewritten. Mm. <laughs> and um, so it's not just a question of translating things. It really has to be adapting, right? The same thing with the jokes. Cranium is a funny, amusing game. Um, and you know, the jokes and the punchlines have to be rewritten for a British audience and Australian audience, a Canadian audience. And so we built a business that was designed around taking content global. Um, and then what ended up happening was, um, that company, uh, experienced all the things that everybody experienced during the dot-com crash. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. You guys was, were in the, at the peak of that. Oh, so in 2002, I had to fire 300 people on my team. Wow. And it and they were all over the world and it was gut-wrenching and it was probably one of the worst experiences of my life. Um, and after that, I, uh, I ended up stepping down myself and then uh, taking a year off because honestly, I needed, I needed, I needed a good year to sort of lick my wounds and, uh, and recover from, you know, just one of the most gut-wrenching experiences of all. You take all this time and energy and care in building teams and you pick people one by one. And, um, you know, at the time my team was performing really well. Um, and so it was the larger context that kind of failed us. Right. And, yeah. and, um, and so, yeah, I ended up doing that and coming back and again, doing another joint. Yeah. And I just wanted to take a, a few steps back. And, um, so after your experience as an entrepreneur, um, and selling the company for parts, like you said, you've gone into various large organizations to act as an entrepreneur, which is really interesting. So, at any point, did you feel as though you're not using all your entrepreneurial chops or you're getting to use a percentage of that whilst at these companies? I mean, I guess as an entrepreneur, mm. you do have the same, I guess you get to be as free as you can within limits, right? So there are, you know, boundaries, but you do have resources. <laughs> so Exactly. So you have the you, benefit of yeah. like getting your computer fixed as soon as it's broken. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, lunch money, uh, uh, travel. Yeah, lunch money, <laughs> travel budgets. Um, yeah. Engineers, but, team, you know, yeah. We, we manage, like, the the team at BGS, for example, that company, uh, we headquartered that venture out of out of Seattle. And, and we were, you know, when I arrived, um, there was a total of maybe eight of us uh, shortly after we doubled the size of the company um, and we hired some people in, in Germany. Um, and then little by little, obviously, the, the team grew and, and, you know, actually not so little. We, we grew pretty quickly. Um, and I guess in that sense, yeah, the speed of the growth was faster than I could have done as an entrepreneur. Um, because it didn't have to be incremental growth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we would get a contract from a client 
And unlike my first company, right, where you had to wait for that check to clear, um, we could go ahead and, you know, we had a, we had a contract. So we could go ahead and based on that paper, go and hire people and make expenditures. Right. right. Um, because the contract was as, as good as cash. Um, and it's those sorts of things. Part, part of it is the design of, you know, having sort of deeper pockets and more funding. But the other part of it is also just evolving and learning. Like what I know now, you know, is that, you know, even if I didn't have corporate backing and a parent company in New York that was essentially underwriting us as we grew the company, um, I still could have, say, based on a PO, I could have gone to a bank and I could have gotten a line of credit, right? Yeah. And I think it's it, it's that sort of creative financing that a lot of scrappy young first-time entrepreneurs don't even realize they're you know that they're possible. And mm. there was something about being in a in a deeply funded you know in a well-funded context that that allowed me to kind of learn. Um, and, and still, you know, have a roof over my head. So that was, that was the advantage, I suppose. So what was the product that you built at Lionbridge? So Lionbridge was a service-based company. Uh, we did build products based on, um, what's called machine translation. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a whole series, it's computational linguistics and machine learning where we basically took dictionaries and build translation memories so that when a translator is translating a massive body of content, think like the Encarta Encyclopedia, right? Mm. If people have already translated entire segments of that content before, maybe from another encyclopedia, then what what happens is you you build these translation memories, sort of almost these databases of previously existing translations, so that a translator, kind of like now, right? When you're writing Google um, emails, it, it you're halfway through the sentence and it guesses what the rest of the sentence is. Yeah, I hate right? that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, because it's not right most of the time. At the moment, yeah. but, um, it'll get better. But we built software that was just like that, but this was a long time ago. And we built software that does that way. As a translator is translator, translating, they, it, the software would essentially guess what they were translating um, and it would match. It would say, we've seen this segment in English before and then we've seen other translators translate that whole sentence in this way in French, right? And so it would make a suggestion for them. And what it allowed us to do, it was really an internal product, is it allowed us to take that translator that was normally charging us, I don't know, 20 cents a word or something. And because we were doing part of the work for them through automation, it allowed us to um, instead pay that translator 13 cents a word. And it wasn't to gouge the translators. It was because we were hopefully increasing their speed, right? So something that would have taken them two hours to do should hopefully take them only an hour to do. Um, so that's most of the products that we built were really internal uh, and they were things like that. They were efficiency. Um, later, what happened was that those product became those products became commercially viable um, and the industry started to take those products and sell them. Uh, but when I was just starting, we were really looking at them as just internal productivity tools, which, you know, I think is the story behind a lot of software, right? People solve their first, their problem first, and then they realize that it's commercial. Right. And I guess what was some of the, I mean, you were there for over, over eight years, I believe. What were some of the biggest challenges of your time there? So after the firings at Bound, uh, which again was a, a company that was underwritten um, by a parent company that still exists today, it's called Bound & Co. And it's the oldest publicly traded company in the United States. Wow. Um, one of the things that I learned um, from that experience, apart from that firing people is really hard, um, <laughs> I learned that culture is really important. And the thing about Bound and Co., which, again, is the oldest publicly traded company in the United States, is that it's still run, or at least back then, it was still run like the oldest publicly traded company in the United States. All the all the big boy deals were done on the golf course. There were no women at the executive level. Mm. It was just a hot mess of a company. Um, and what I spent a lot of my energy doing in building our company was I spent a ton of energy shielding my team from basically parent Co.'s culture, right? Um when we opened, for example, an office in Denmark, in Copenhagen, they offered to house us in their offices. But their offices had um, work hours where you had to be in by a certain hour and you had to, you know, and, and not leave before a certain hour. They had dress codes. They had all of these arcane rules that, like, my scrappy startup people didn't understand. Yeah. Um, so we got ourselves an office above the Erotica Museum and the Walking Mall in Denmark and wow. Copenhagen. And we had no dress codes and we, you know, people could show up whenever they wanted as long as they got their, their work done, right? But there was a whole lot of me shielding my team from the parent code because that, that culture was so toxic. Um, 
And so what I learned at the next company, which is I think where you, what you're referring to is then we started a company with Lionbridge. Um, and Lionbridge is a company that at the time was publicly traded. It was um, headquartered out of just outside of Boston. Um, and it was very different. They had women at the executive level. They had, you know, uh, a CEO, Rory Colin, who was, um, I don't know what his actual, you know, personal politics are, but as far as like how he runs a business, he was very egalitarian and he was, uh, fair and, um, he, he created a culture that was a lot more interesting and a lot more conducive to just people, you know, getting things done and being happy. And so that was the biggest learning for me is that, um, I thrived in the latter context because the culture was so much better. And ultimately what Lionbridge ended up doing while I was there is we ended up going back and acquiring, uh, my old company, Bound Global Solutions. Oh, so yeah, we ended up, um, we were the two largest in the industry. Lionbridge was actually the second largest. Uh, when the acquisition happened, we had to go through antitrust because even though we're a tiny little industry in our industry, we were the two largest players. Um, so we had to prove, you know, to, to the courts that, you know, it wasn't a monopoly and that there were plenty yeah. of other players in the space. Um, but we did that and, you know, I got reunited with a lot of my old team um, and that company um, ended up producing my last um, project, which was a project where we built essentially global crowdsourcing solutions. So think if you're familiar with like Mechanical Turk or Elance, like no. where you can crowdsource, um, you can take a task like um, the, probably one of the better known ones in the early days was there was a billionaire who got lost, uh, apparently crashed his plane somewhere in the desert in Nevada. And there was the sense that well, there was the reality that like you got to find him probably within the first 24 hours or the chances of him surviving are pretty slim. But the, there weren't enough people to review all of the aerial footage of the massive and vast Nevada desert. And so they went on, I don't know if it was Elance or Mechanical Turk, and they crowdsourced it. So they paid people, I don't know, something like 25 cents or something per square mile of oh, searching wow. through this imaging to try to find the guy. Um, and that way you could get a thousand people at, you know, 25 cents a unit, whatever you define the unit to be, to go and, and crowdsource a task, right? Mm -hmm. It's a really great way to get tedious, repetitive, technical tasks accomplished for really cheap. Um, and so the, the search engines think Google, Bing, right, any algorithmic company, they were using crowdsourcing to teach the algorithms. And I think that that's something that people who aren't technical don't sometimes realize, or even if they are technical, but they don't work in this space. Um, algorithms don't actually learn by themselves like magic. Algorithms <laughs> only learn by themselves if you feed them data. data. Like it's just like AI, algorithms. yeah. I mean, our company, our totally. AI company, we have to feed it data daily so it learns and, and adopts and adapts. Totally. And so what, what the search engines were at the time, think this is 2003, right, is the search engines were, were starting to get pretty decent. Um, certainly, you know, I think Google always had a, a leg up on Bing, um, but they were, they were starting to be pretty decent at U.S. English, right? Mm. But they were pretty crappy at just about every other language, and for that matter, <laughs> British English or Australian English, right? They, they, they weren't good. And so we ended up... Um, building a business initially in cooperation um, with Google and, and then Bing, um, where we replicated the model, say, of like Elance or Mechanical Turk, where anybody can just show up and like contribute to answering questions. Like, for example, when I type in the Big Apple, is the right result a bunch of results about apples? Like, no, you know, it, it has to learn that it's a it's an idiom, right? It's a figure of speech that the yeah. Big Apple means New York City. Well, now think about that equivalent like of that figure of speech in Croatian and Hebrew and Arabic and Japanese, right? Um, and so you've got to teach the engine all of these little colloquialisms and all these different languages. And so we had people that did that, but the, the challenge that they were having is that Mechanical Turk and these companies, um, they can't control who comes to the platform. Anybody in the world can just come on board and do this work. Whereas if your biggest asset is your algorithm, you don't want, you know, junk in, right? Somebody who says they're from Paris, but when you check their IP, they're actually in Tunisia. What are they going to know about, you know, the best restaurants in Paris, right? Um, or somebody who clearly is not a human being, right? We would look at the data in aggregate and there would be some bots in there, clearly. Um, and so what we basically did is we built them a private crowd. So it was about, at the time um, that I left, we were about 70,000 people Wow. Uh, in the crowd in about 
for, I think over 40 countries at that point um, that were just this private crowd that like the people like Bing and Google and whatnot used to use to help their algorithms get smarter. Um, how and, do you, and basically how do you do find testing. these people to join the crowd? It must be some kind of, I don't know, is it like a subreddit group or something? Like, how do you find them? It's insane because you want them to be every, you want them to be kind of a, a typical average person. You don't want them to be coders. You don't want them to be just geeks. You don't, you know, like you want them to be sort of your average consumer. So the biggest challenge with that business was just building this mach recruiting machine, basically, mm. in all of these different countries um, and regions. So um, that, that honestly was the biggest challenge of all, uh, because the, the other reality is that people didn't stay long, right? Um, it was a part-time job for most people. They would do it on the side as sort of a side hustle, um, which means that you had, you know, pretty big turnover. And so we had to constantly be supplementing them with uh, new people. Um, but yeah, that, you know, that was a fun time, mostly because it was one of these things where, again, just like my first startup, like where do you go to school to learn about how to build the very, very first algorithms mm. for the search engines in all these different languages? Like that wasn't a thing. We were sort of making it up as we went. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so then you, you left after um, a good stretch there um, and then you co-founded the Entrepreneurs at Athena. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I left pretty burnt out. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can imagine it was, it was a, you, you were there for a while. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and it, it was it was heavy on the travel. It was heavy on the drama. My teams were amazing, uh, but it was high stakes, right? There was always some like geopolitical disaster that some client was either trying to avert or trying to fix after they had broken it. Um, and so it was just really intense. And I don't know that I was super good at pacing myself or at, or at uh, you know, just uh, taking care of myself. And so I needed a few years off. I knew that I needed a sabbatical. I needed a couple years off at least. Um, and so I decided to go to the one place in the world that I feel the most calm and relaxed, which nobody understands, but that's New York. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I think New York is just the pace of New York is my natural rhythm. And so when I come here, I, you know, I feel sort of, uh, at very home. much, uh, at home. Yeah. So, you know, I moved here, I decided to give a little bit of time off. Um, I ended up um, realizing that I'm not the kind of person who can just sit around and read books as much as I love books, um, but, or, you know, and, and chill out. So, um, you know, went to every museum, really got to know the city, um, did all the New York, you know, I just moved to New York stuff. Um, and then realized I either needed to, to get back into it, or I needed to figure out something else to do with my time, uh, if I was really going to take a sabbatical. And so, um, I've always been a storyteller at heart. Um, so I applied to Columbia's theater school and they let me in. Um, wow. and so I, I ended up studying playwriting. I found myself in crazy, crazy places. My friends call it my Forrest Gump years. Um, <laughs> cause I, you know, I was in the room watching and help, um, when Stevie, uh, Steve Martin, excuse me, and Edie Brickell were working on their musical. And then, um, in the summer of 2013, I was the playwright in residence at basically like a like a play like a theater incubator in a way that exists upstate called um, the Powerhouse Theater. Oh, interesting. Um, people go there with their unfinished works to try to take them to the next level, right? And so there was this guy who shows up frantically trying to fi finish the first act of his musical when I was in residence there. Um, and then when all of the actors arrived, I discovered that it was Lin-Manuel Miranda and what was then called Hamilton Mixtape. Oh, wow. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just, I kept finding myself in these amazing places. I learned a ton. I didn't know the first thing about theater or playwriting, but obviously after a couple of years of, of being in that world, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about good storytelling. Um, but in the process, I also met a woman who is an icon um, she argued this Supreme Court case, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which in 1992 is the case that is credited with saving Roe v. Wade in the U.S. Um, she and I met. She was teaching at Barnard College, at the Women's College connected to Columbia. Um, and we ended up cooking up this idea of starting a center for women entrepreneurs, largely because I had spent you know, my entire career in that space. And I realized what a slog it had been and yeah. how um, in the next phase of my career, I think that I really wanted to start paying it forward. So how, how does, how does it work? And I know it's still going on today, which is awesome, 
but is it like an incubator, like a youth center? How did, like, how does it work? It was a center that initially, it's funny, we had this strategy of like throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks, but uh, we decided pretty early on that we had to stop that because everything kept sticking. Um, <laughs> and because I'm just, I'm a planner and I like to have data and I don't like to mess around. Like if I'm going to do something, we're going to do it right, right? And so um, we built all sorts of things. So for example, we built a summer camp for high school girls uh, to teach that it's like a startup boot camp. It's an 11 day super intensive thing. They go through everything from learning lean to uh, figuring, getting coaching from Broadway directors and actors on how to pitch. And then at the end of it, they pitch in front of real investors. Um, that happens every single summer at Barnard uh, to this day. Um, we we also um, had a faculty come to us and say, look, I know you guys are focused on entrepreneurship, but we have a problem on campus that um, we don't have enough women here at Barnard or, or for that matter at Columbia who are studying computer science. Um, and in fact, they had a problem that 55% of all students who were women were dropping out, out of intro level computer science classes uh, within the first two weeks. Um, and so we built something called Athena Digital Design, which essentially is um, a, a one-semester class where they learn front-end web development and, um, and design. And at the end of it, if they succeed at completing the class, then they have the ability to, own, uh, to join an agency. And the agency is basically in the business of making basic websites for small businesses. Think like, you know, the restaurant or like the nail salon or the professor that just wrote a book. Um, for pretty cheap, but it's it's more money than they would make babysitting or bartending, which is what so many students do. Right. Um, and is and it a paid a paid course or? It it the they get to take the course for free. Um, they get selected, and then they if they succeed at finishing the course, then they join the agency, and the agency takes a cut out of every website that they make, and that's how they support themselves. Um, but yeah, you know, and then we did another program, for example, for women over the age of 50, because it turns out that there is statistical data, actuarial data, that says that women over the age of 50 are twice as likely to be successful as entrepreneurs. Wow. Um, and so we did a bunch of trainings and programs for women of the, over the age of 50, which I love that stat because, you know, it, when people ask me, you know, why people make decisions or why investors invest a certain way, I, I am adamant that, you know, we clearly do it entirely based on bias and we do not make decisions for the most part based on real data because if that were true, then Silicon Valley would be swimming in nothing but women over the age of 50. Yeah. Um, and obviously it's not. <laughs> oh, it really, it really is not. No, that's incredible. So I want to switch gears now and talk a little bit about uh, your fund. So Bravo Investments and the book, of course. So how did the, how did the fund come about? Um, and what made you go down the fund route? And, and then how did the book spin out of that? Yeah, so having been immersed at the Athena Center, right, at Barnard, in just constantly being surrounded by women entrepreneurs and sort of experiencing and, and really getting a sense of what their experience is, um, what I realized is that ultimately what was really holding most women entrepreneurs back uh, you know, all entrepreneurs need mentoring and all entrepreneurs need coaching and all, all sorts of and resources and media, etc. Um, but what was really holding women entrepreneurs back was, was a lack of capital. Um, and so after doing that for a few years, I realized, you know, if I'm going to focus on the real acute problem here and I'm going to really move the dial, then I'm going to focus where the problem is largest, right? And that's the capital side. And so it was based on that learning that I decided I was going to go into finance. And then I looked around and I saw that a lot of People that I know, colleagues, were starting funds for women. Um, and I, I I, found that there wasn't one at the time, this was three years ago or so, that really resonated with me. Um, they were all focused on early stage, and I had spent most of my career taking already mid-size or even large-size companies and making them bigger. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea of super, super early stage didn't feel like it would be making the most of my expertise. Um and the other thing that I noticed is that they all um, required that there be a female founder on the team. Um, that was that was an important thing that I noticed that almost that every fund that I looked at um, had in common. And then the other thing that I noticed is that when I looked back about ten or fifteen years of all the companies that had been invested by these funds that focused on women, um, what I saw was the same thing 
that we complain that uh, the guys in Silicon Valley do, which is pattern matching. Yeah. You had a bunch of white women investing only in other white women. Mm. Um, so they were doing the exact same thing that the bros in Silicon Valley were doing that they complained about all the time. And I thought, hmm, okay. Um, none of those things feel like they're right and compatible with me in the way that I want to be doing things. And so it was based on that that I realized I probably am not going to join somebody else's fund or, or platform. I'm, I'm probably going to have to build my own. Um, and then based on that, um, you know, in 2016, we, I launched Brava, um, initially building essentially what's called a demonstration portfolio, where we made a series of investments based on um, raising money each time for each deal in syndicates. Mm. Um, and then the idea being that you build that demonstration portfolio to show people um, what you're capable of, what your thesis is, uh, what it looks like, how it works. And then, um, based on that, we'll be raising a fund next year. Awesome. So, this is not a traditional VC firm in the sense that you guys have like a fund of like 20, 30 million and you guys deploy capital. It's kind of like a syndicate kind of group effort. It's a hold co model, the way that Berkshire Hathaway is a hold co model. Right. There's, you know, or Tencent, where WeChat came out of, yeah. is a hold co. Right, so there are a lot of these around, and that was our that's our model. But we will be moving, we will be raising a fund next year, and then it'll look a lot more traditional. But my my hope is always to stay within a Holdco model, um, at least in part, because with a Holdco model, I think that it allows you to treat every investment uniquely, mm. and it also allows your investors to cash out the moment that that company you know exits. For example, they don't have to wait for the overall performance of the fund; they can they can take out dividends the moment that that one company you know. Um, cashes exits or IPOs, for example. Um, there's another hold co in Boston called Blue.io, who I love. They recently sold AppNexus to AT&T for $1.6 billion. Wow. Um, what, it, what it allows you to do, too, is it allows you to be long view. It allows you to um, not randomly force entrepreneurs to, to exit on your timeline. Like, just because you have a five-year fund and you've really just got to, you know, close basically the business is up and show like you know what your return on investment is all on your cycle like if i'm an entrepreneur on the receiving end of that like i don't care that you insist that i you know exit immediately like what if i don't want to do that what if what's best for my company <laughs> yeah. isn't selling it right now what if yeah. you know the best thing for my company is that i sell in a year and two and three i mean that's um, what um if you look at the buffer story those guys they just bought their investors out because they were like we're gonna grow on our own terms um, exactly. And they, were, they were like, we, we don't want to do this anymore. And they just bought everyone out and, you know, they're going to do what they want to do. And, you know, I would rather have that sort of a relationship with entrepreneurs where we can think about what's best for their company, what timeline makes the most sense. And when I say makes the most sense, I'm not talking like because it's charity and I just like to make nice with founders. It's because what makes the most sense will also make everyone the most money. Yeah. I know plenty of VCs who are like, you know what, if I had had my druthers and I didn't have to report to all these um LPs that insisted that our fund have a certain life cycle, I would have totally held on to that company because we would have made so much more if we had, you know? So it's not about, um, it, it really is about maximizing returns um, and doing it in a way that um, reflects the need of each company, right? Absolutely. So then what you're doing this, how did the book come about? I mean, I know you said that you love telling stories, but how did you come about writing this book? Le yeah, you know, Le the book. Leapfrog, yeah, the new the new revolution for women entrepreneurs. And what's funny is that I've had a bunch of my male friends give me a hard time that they've read the book and they don't think that most of the advice is gendered at all. And that <laughs> yeah. it's super useful for for the male entrepreneur just as much as as you know the woman entrepreneur. And I think that that's that's absolutely true. Uh, but the reality is is um, who I intend uh, mm. to sort of benefit most from it is where is where the title came from, and that is. You know, as I mentioned before, women are starting more companies than men, and yet they're only getting 2.5% of venture capital, and women of color are actually getting 0.2%, which is pathetic. Wow. Um, and so what I wanted to do was I wanted to give that group of people um, who don't tend to have the trust funds and the connections and the Ivy League educations and all the different things that are actually super helpful in the space – um, a different set of basically hacks so that they can kind of circumvent the system essentially and figure out a way to thrive, but thrive on their own terms. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, 
there are just so many things about our industry that, that frankly piss me off that I, you know, I kept reading book after book my entire life. I have read business books that didn't reflect my experience as an immigrant kid that didn't have friends and family that could write big fat checks. Um, you know, it was like, and then I started to read the stats and it was like, well, I'm not the only one. It turns out the average American family doesn't have $5,000 in their bank account. So who are these friends and family? They're supposed <laughs> yeah. to be writing. Who are your, yeah, that's restaurants. always the, the, the best question. Who are your friends and family? <laughs> like, who are you related? Like, who are you? Uh, you know, and then, and then also just the general, in, in our space, right, this general consensus that, look, if you, if you want to grow your company and you want to grow fast, then you're going to have to get venture capital. Like, you're just going to have to because if, you, if you're serious about fast growth, then that's just what you have to do. And I'm not poo-pooing the idea of venture capital overall, but I'm saying that the narrative that that's the only way is completely inaccurate, yeah. right? And so I give examples. Like, there's a woman in the book named Nina Vaca who owns a company called Pinnacle. Um, this year it was nominated, um, I can't remember if it was Inc. Magazine or another organization, as the fastest growing woman-owned company in the United States. Wow. It's a billion dollars. It's going to hit a billion dollars in revenue this year. And, again, owned by an Ecuadorian immigrant just like me, she never took one penny of venture capital. Wow. So, you know, for people who are like, the only way to scale and the only way to scale fast is venture capital, I say Nina freaking Baca. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, and I give 63 examples of people like Nina who have figured out how to succeed, but to do it kind of on their own terms. And in many ways, um, doing it in a way that conflicts with the dominant narrative that tells you, look, there's only one way. Right? And I guess I'm assuming she's done that through kind of like debt financing and revenue and just growing a really smart business. Yeah, she also took advantage of uh, supplier diversity programs, right? In, right. in her case... You know, and, and she talks in the books very specifically about how she did that. She didn't, like, go and, like, pitch AT&T one day. And, you know, she was a teeny tiny company and she's going to go to a massive company like that and say, let me, let me be a vendor for you. She went and she basically rode the coattails of a big vendor that already, for example, worked for, like, an AT&T. And so she was a vendor for a vendor. And then in the uh. process, she kind of learned the ropes. She figured it out. And then once she figured out, you know, sort of how that system worked and how to service a massive customer like that, then she circumvented basically that vendor and then went direct, but only after she figured out the ropes, right? And so it's it's tactics like that. But you're right. There's also, um, in the book, I talk about fi- financing, um, alternative financing, like lines of credit. People have this negative connotation of what debt is, probably in the U.S. because so many people are subje- subjected to predatory yeah. like student, student loans and yeah. things like that, right? Yeah. Um, but there is good debt. There is really important debt that as an entrepreneur you have to embrace. Um, and so I talk about that and I talk about different ways that even if you don't have all the revenue that you need to qualify for a loan, here's some ways that you might be able to circumvent those requirements. And here's some really great terms that exist out there um, as part of the small business administration at the state level or at the federal level and just free money in the form of grants from foundations and competitions. And, you know, I so I try to like dig up all these resources that maybe your average entrepreneur isn't aware are there and available to them. Yeah, no, awesome. Um, I know you've been doing a ton of kind of speaking engagements around the book. So, what else do you have in the pipeline over the next few weeks in case, you know, people are going to be listening and wanted to catch you anywhere? You know, um, the United States of Women uh, is a program that came out of the White House, uh, the Obama White House, and oh. they do a tour all around the country. Um, it came out of the Council on Women and Girls. And what they did is when that administration ended, they went ahead and continued the United States of Women as a nonprofit. And um, they had a massive conference last May in Los Angeles. Michelle Obama spoke and all sorts of great people spoke. Um, and now they're taking it all around the country. And so the next one, for example, um, is... Uh, is Philly, which is, I believe, on the 16th of November. And then the next one after that is going to be December 1st in Albuquerque. Um, but if people go to leapfroghacks.com, there's a whole event section that basically tells you uh, where I am. Awesome. I want to work towards wrapping up now and ask a few rapid fire questions, which I ask all guests that come on the show. So what has or who has been your biggest inspiration? Oh, I know this is a cliche, but my mom. <laughs> I'm actually yeah to be fair I've had mum a few times on the show that's good uh, favourite podcast oh that's so hard to say um, Maria Hinojosa um, has a, a podcast and I suppose it's also an NPR syndicated show called Latino USA and it is 
Um, it is way more than just for Latinos. It is one of the few places in the world where you can actually get real news. Awesome. Favorite blog? Ooh. Um, favorite blog? So hard to pick. Uh, there was one, and I wonder if it still exists, but it inspired a chapter in my book, and it was Things I Want to Punch. And it was a woman <laughs> talking about all the things she wanted to punch, and there's a section in my book, a hack called Forget Passion, Find Things You Want to Punch. That's good. I'm going to check that out. Uh, favorite book? Oh, um, if it's fiction, I would say a book by Salman Rushdie that is my all-time favorite novel ever called The Ground Beneath Her Feet. I've heard of that. I heard that's a good one. I need to check that out now. Uh, favorite Instagram account? <laughs> <laughs> my... My dog's babysitter took it upon herself to make her an Instagram account, which is ridiculous, which means that <laughs> my dog now has her own Instagram account, and it's uh, it's called Chow Chow Lila, and L-I-L-A. Oh, I, have, I definitely have to check that. I'm onto the dog Instagram accounts these days. Um, <laughs> what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do? I wish that I was better at Tuning out shit I don't want to hear. Oh, you and me both. Uh, <laughs> advice you would give to your 21-year-old self? I would tell her to cut herself some slack and when things don't go as they're planned, uh, to just be a little bit easier on herself. That's good. If you had $100 in your favorite city, what would you spend it on? A hundred dollars in my favorite city, I would pro uh, I mean, sorry to the UK <laughs> uh, host, but my favorite city is Paris and uh, I would spend it on food. Yeah. Uh, what's the one thing that startups should ignore in the early days? Their competition. Mm. And what's the vision for Brava? I mean, I know I read somewhere that you want to make Brava investments the same size as Berkshire Hathaway. Um, but is there any more to that? Yeah, I think that everybody else is focused on the next unicorn and making, you know, a couple founders billionaires. I am not worried about that. I would much rather invest in companies that raise up a billion women than just, you know, take one person and make them a billionaire. Oh, that's good. And that's what you want to achieve through Barbara. Totally. Absolutely. Natalie, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was awesome having you on. Um, if people want to get a hold of you, where can they find you? All of my social media handles, as well as even uh, information about my company and the book, are at leapfroghacks.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I just want to say another huge thank you to Natalie for coming on the show. And be sure to check out her new book, Leapfrog, The New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs. It's honestly a great read. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on the Apple Podcasting app or anywhere else you listen to your favorite podcasts. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, guys. Keep grinding.